Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest was raised in Salt Lake City. He is a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow in Prose, and he graduated from the Missioner Center for Writers. His work has appeared in the Best American Essays, and he has been supported by McDowell and the Corporation of Yaddo. His debut memoir, Leg, The Story of a Limb and the Boy Who Grew From It, is out now. Please welcome Greg Marshall. Hey, Greg. How you doing today? I'm doing great. We finally have a little bit of rain and some cloud cover here in Austin. So it finally dropped below 100 for the yes. first time in a long time. So it feels nice out there. Yes, the rain is so necessary. Uh, the heat kills me. I am so glad that yeah we're breaking into autumn finally. Uh, cannot wait. Um, and I have to compliment you. Readers will not see this, but your mustache is killer. I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been the summer of Speedos at Barton mm-hmm. Springs and a mustache. So I'm yes. 38 years old and I feel like I'm finally like embracing my like man body more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I just went through airport security and the guy was like, oh, the mustache made the computer take an extra minute because my license doesn't <laughs> yeah. have I'm like a clean shaven yeah. person trying to be a twink um, <laughs> on my license. So, yeah, anyway, mustaches yes. are all the you also have nice facial hair <laughs> thank you yeah i um i used to do just a mustache like in college and early 20s and then i stopped but i think i'm getting ready to go back to it mine looks more like tom Selleck. it's like real black and bushy <laughs> and then i've been bleaching my hair so the dichotomy between the two is wild so anyway yeah low-key dropping that your mustache looks like tom Selleck is like saying you know you have like a 14 inch cock or something. Yeah. Like that's well, <laughs> I say it looks like Tom Selleck. <laughs> Everyone else tells me it looks like Ron Jeremy. So there you go. Like, I mean, you can't win them all. Um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about mustaches. We're here to talk about your amazing memoir, uh, Leg. And there's a subtitle, but I will let you tell readers who may have not discovered it what Leg's about and from your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Leg is kind of the story of coming out as disabled and queer. Um, the basic premise is that I, when I was 30 years old and applying for private health insurance for the first time in my life, I um, had my health insurance application flagged and the person asked, what's the source of your traumatic brain injury? Because I'd noted things like hamstrings and Achilles tendon releases and physical therapy and so many of the trappings of a person with cerebral palsy. But um, growing up, my parents never told me I have this diagnosis that I was in fact diagnosed with at 18 months, they just said that I had tight tendons. So I um, walk with a limp and, and, you know, always have, but it wasn't until, you know, that moment when I was 30 years old that I put it all together, that I've always had this disability. And so it kind of let me look back on so much that had happened in my childhood and in my family. Um, My mom has cancer. My dad passed away from ALS. Um, Lou Gehrig's disease, and I was one of his caregivers. Um, I have a neurodiverse little sister. There was just a lot of things about um, disabled bodies and illness and queerness kind of coursing through my family. And it was through looking at my life through the prism of my leg that I started to see 
that all of those things were connected. How do families deal with disability? What are the illnesses and ailments that get valorized like cancer and what things are kind of brushed under the rug or not spoken of or, um, you know, stigmatized to the point of shame and silence. And I think one thing I wanted to do with the book was really pair a more traditional coming out as a gay man story with a much less traditional coming out as disabled narrative and, you know, kind of let the reader compare and contrast those things in their own mind and kind of, um, you know, create this like intersectional um, web that I think we all kind of like live in, but just let that, letting it kind of be a psychedelic spider web of Mm -hmm. all of these different, you know, connections and, um, you know, things that resonate differently as we age and as we, um, you know, aren't just kids anymore, but sometimes caregivers and sometimes, you know, have adult relationships with our siblings and have adult relationships with ourselves and our former yeah. selves. Yeah, the book uh, was so moving and eye-opening and I can't wait for more and more readers to discover it. Um, what part of the book will you be reading for us today? Um, I wanted to read from um, a chapter called Heal by Angels And it's about a time when uh, I moved home from college. My dad was um, on a respirator um, from ALS and my mom had cancer at the time. And I started dating um, basically for lack of a better term, a gay fabulist, a guy who kind of kept um, telling me these fibs and lies about himself. Um, And one you know, one kind of through line of the book is how love and deception are often twinned, how they're, you know, how they're often together. And I think that can happen in family. So yeah, that was the, that's the part that I'm going to read from. Terrific. Take it away. Okay. We were in the hot tub in the backyard, finishing root beer floats the first time Kevin brought up wanting to start a church. A church, I exclaimed. I wasn't sure whether to smile if this was a joke. Kevin described himself as a seeker, not a fundamentalist, and too skeptical of the powers of the powers that be to attend church. Now he wanted to start one. Had someone implanted a chip in his brain, like in an FPS skit? Kevin drifted over to me and wiped some dried ice cream from my chin with his thumb. The chlorine dispenser spun in his wake like a flying saucer. Not like the Mormon church, Kevin chuckled, but a church to save the planet. Would get around using horse and buggy, build houses that faced west to soak up natural light, burn candles, brew beer. As part of this new religion, he wanted to move to London to start a microbrewery, an artist commune where folks could come together and create, like the Carmelite nuns in town who made fudge. What's the free pot situation going to be? I asked. I was trying to doodle a penis in my empty hire's cup, the wax piling up under my fingernails. I only ever drew flaccid penises. I thought they were cute. A little pot would be fun, Kevin said, grinning wickedly. He tugged at my leg, pulling it onto his lap, and dug his thumbs into my small, hairy calf. It felt good. Just don't touch my scars, I said, because that made me nauseous. I let my cup shoot off into the bubbles as Kevin's fingers crawled up my swim trunks. The AC unit next to the hot tub chugged on, and, as if it were attached to a fan, large enough to cool the whole backyard, a corresponding breeze moved through the aspens and cottonwood trees, 
carrying away twists of chlorine-smelling steam. Dad's bedroom window was open on the second story. If his machines weren't too loud, he could probably hear us splashing around in the hot tub. It was surreal to be down there talking about wanting to smoke a joint as he lay above us, breathing through a hole in his throat. The next I heard of the Church of Kevin was at his cousin Trisha's new apartment on 45th South. We were passing around a two-liter bottle of Diet Shasta and a bag of baked barbecue chips, Holiday's version of health food, when Kevin asked if we wanted to see the logo he'd had a graphic designer mock-up. He pulled it up on Trisha's computer. It looked like a coat of arms. Now for the big surprise, Kevin said. He asked Trisha to turn off the lights as he scrolled through his inbox to find the link to a real estate listing. Trisha and I closed our eyes, and when we opened them, an Edwardian mansion lit up Trisha's computer screen and most of her tiny living room and kitchen. The estate was surrounded by oak trees and bluebells and had mullioned windows and a ballroom with a two-story ceiling. I'm putting an offer on this place, Kevin said. The house was in Hampstead, the heart of literary London, according to the listing, and cost millions of pounds. Kevin called it, accurately enough, the Abbey. Its real name was something like Wenton House. It was the kind of house that had a name. I'd just met Trisha, but she reminded me of the Mormon girls I'd gone to high school with. She was big and athletic, with a short blonde ponytail and an irrepressible smile. It was comforting experiencing the abnormal with someone so down to earth. She seemed used to dealing with blowhard boys. Trisha set down her solo cup of Diet Shasta by the keyboard and pulled her ponytail tighter, wrinkling her nose. I wouldn't want to live in such a big place, would you? She asked, trying to give Kevin an out. The size worries me not at all, Kevin replied, clicking through photos of a cozy study, an entryway with a crystal chandelier, and a kitchen filled with gleaming modern appliances. That was one of Kevin's verbal tics. He'd say the opposite of what he meant, and then add, not at all, to the end of it. It gave his every utterance a, pre a preliminary feel. It's a fairly modest property for what I have in mind. Unsettled, I begged off to meet some high school friends. After ordering a Coors Light at the bar, I realized I wasn't sure how to explain Kevin and his antics, what I felt about his spiritual side or my own. What did a brewery and a swanky English estate have to do with starting a church anyway? When I came home an hour later, my clothes perfumed with smoke, Dad was banging on the footboard of his bed and bucking his hips. Thankfully, the green and red numbers on his respirator weren't flashing. Can you breathe? I rushed to his side without thinking to turn on a light. What's going on? Do you have to go to the bathroom? Dad nodded yes and clicked his tongue, so I fished through the commode until I found his urinal. To think I'd been worried about the prospect of handling Dad's dick. I was now so comfortable I could do it in the dark, almost without thinking. I started to unfasten his brief and heard Mom creak out of the bed with squashed against the window seat for whoever was on night duty. Greg, Mom said. Dad's masturbating. I've been up with him for 45 minutes and he doesn't respond. He keeps making kissing noises. He's having a wet dream. Dad shook his head the little he could in vigorous disagreement. I have to pee, he mouthed. I stopped unfastening his brief. I'd come a long way as a caregiver, but I wasn't in the mood to be jack-in-the-boxed by a dad boner. I held out the urinal to my mom. Here, you do it. Oh, Bob, whatever, mom retorted. Then how come you didn't respond when I was asking if you had to go to the bathroom? She got out of bed and cinched her robe, ran a hand over the short hair that was growing in une unevenly on the crown of her head. I have this under control. Did she, though? 
Mom's caregiving had taken a turn for the worse since she'd gotten a prescription for fentanyl patches. There were a lot of painkillers and muscle relaxants floating around Dad's room, antidepressants and sleeping pills too. I'd never paid much attention to them. This was in the days before the word opioid started appearing with the word crisis in the news. Back then, I didn't know what an opioid was, but I remember bottles of Oxycontin, Clonopin, and Vicodin lined up on Tiffany's dresser. We'd grind, we'd grind them up in a pill crusher, mix them with water in a, beak, in a beaker, and feed them into Dad's G-tube. Fentanyl was stronger than all those pills combined and proved fantastic at mitigating Mom's bone pain and calming her. I'd gotten used to her operating with a kind of whacked-in-the-head, out-of-it quality that made her appear like she wasn't in her body so much as hovering above it on a kite string. The downside was that she'd become so scary behind the wheel that one motorist had tailed her home and told her she shouldn't be on the road. It could be toxic to put a fentanyl patch in the same spot twice, and Mom often needed help sticking them on out-of-the-way places on her back. One morning before I left for work, she had me take a patch out of the wastebasket in her bathroom so she could lick it. You mean the one I just peeled off your shoulder and threw in the garbage? I asked. It's not really the garbage, honey. Just grab it. Mom was naked from the waist up and staring me down in the mirror. Whatever you call it, it's full of dirty kitty litter, I said. It wasn't, but it could have been. Quit being such a sissy and give me the patch, Mom said. I retrieved the used patch and handed it over. If Mom was going to be an asshole... I'd let her lick whatever she wanted. She uncrinkled the patch and spread it taut, pinching it between her thumbs and index fingers. After she, after her first pass with her tongue, lapping at the patch like she would a lid of yogurt, she said, I'm a fucking addict, okay? And I'll stop there. Thank you so much for reading. Um, you went to, you got your MFA in 2013 um, from the Missioner Center in Austin. It is in Austin. Yeah. I'm not yes. crazy. Um, I knew it was in Texas. I just blanked on the city. And you also graduated with a bachelor's in journalism um, from Northwestern. So it sounds like writing was in your blood from a young age. Like you went to college at 18 to get a degree in journalism. Uh, did you all, were you always on that path or how did writing become part of your life? I was, I think looking back, um, writing was something I was encouraged to do because it was something I could do in my own time and in my own way. And, um, you know, something that was subjective enough that I could be considered good at it, <laughs> you know, whereas yeah. like so many of the more standard measurements, I probably like didn't measure up or wasn't, you know, special or excellent at them. And my mom was a writer. She, um, she went to journalism school as well. She worked in newspapers and so, you know, she even had a feature column for these tiny local community newspapers growing up. And so she'd let me write poetry for them. And so I think, you know, seeing how she became the hero of her own story um, really made me want to do the same for myself as a kid. Like I just saw how being a writer was kind of glamorous and kind of mm -hmm. cool. And, um, you know, this is a ridiculous childhood thought, but I, I remember thinking, you know, it's a way to like be famous without having to be famous, <laughs> yeah. which of course, like being a writer is absolutely the least glamorous <laughs> thing you could do. And the farthest <laughs> thing from, you know, anything approximating celebrity. Um, but yeah. And so I think it was just a path that I got on and, and kind of stuck with because interesting things kind of kept 
happening and finding that perfect combination for me of, you know, of fiction and using the tools of fiction, like plot and setting and character, but with nonfiction, um, kind of arriving at that point took a long time. Um, so yeah, so I think that was, that was kind of the basics of my journey. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you mentioned that you discovered your, your, you discovered your leg at 30. What were you writing before then, before you start this book, before you start kind of writing more essays based around coming out in two ways? Um, what was of interest in your early writing career? Well, yeah, I think um, I read George Saunders in as an undergrad, um, like back in the mid 2000s. And, you know, like everybody else, I just loved his work so much. So I think my fiction was more on that path, more like surreal and there were ghosts and historical figures. Um, one uh, piece or like one short story I wrote um, was like about a guy who transforms himself into a rat and crawls up his boyfriend's ass to eat <laughs> his AIDS. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of like my my big like claim to fame. They were like, whoa, like, okay, wow, this... Uh, <laughs> this kid is really weird. Um, but yeah, so it was more, um, I think that I just was using writing just as a, such an imaginative exercise mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and I love that kind of writing. Um, and I still love, you know, the George Saunders of the world, but it was hard to find a place for my own work. Um, do, you know, kind of doing that kind of writing. Um, so I, that's, I think after grad school, I just, you know, it's a funny thing being a writer. Cause I think I always did it because it was kind of contrary to, you know, I grew up in, you know, a very like LDS community mm -hmm. as a non-Mormon kid. And I think part of what made me want to be a writer is that sense of outsiderness. So, you know, I kind of went to journalism school and was like, oh God, I can't do this. Like, this is what everybody's doing. And, you know, so kind of switched over to fiction and then got an MFA in fiction and was like, oh, my God, like, I can't do this. This is what everybody's doing. Everybody's mm -hmm. writing, you know, stories where like the boyfriend transforms into a rat and eats his boyfriend's names. Um, and so I think that's kind of how I landed on, um, you know, kind of on my own story, kind of combining a little bit of that journalism, researchy, kind of digging into childhood journals, digging into the archives kind of approach with, um, you know, using that full fiction palette. Mm -hmm. A lot of your writing, um, you know, in the book and outside of it uh, is filled with humor. Um, how important is hum humor for your writing? And then I guess a follow-up question is, how do you inject humor? Do you do it on purpose? Does it come naturally? Is it hard? Is it easy? Well, I think I'm just such a overly sensitive little snowflake of a person. And like my core self is like so tremblingly sincere mm -hmm. um, and like outraged and all of the things that I think when I, I think I had, I think like that was the first aspect of myself that like overly sensitive child and then um I think I would just say things and people would kind of laugh and I would sort of like learn to ham it up a little bit or 
um, I don't know, I guess I learned to sort of crave the laugh. And I think that that kind of trembling vulnerability just is weird because it like lends itself to humor. I think that especially in writing, when you can kind of push to the point of cringe and beyond, suddenly those are like these literary stem cells and you can make, you know, you can make it heartbreaking. You can make it really funny. Um, you can kind of make it surprising. I mean, I think so much of the humor in leg and kind of in me is just stating the truth <laughs> or mm -hmm. like, you know, putting something so bluntly that it's surprising. It's like, whoa, like, why would a 38 year old man say that? Or, mm -hmm. or, or why would a why would a 26 year old man write a story about a guy eating his boyfriend's AIDS as a, as a rat, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, um, yeah, but it's, so it, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that kind of answers. No, your... it does. Yeah. Um, I know you, like you, you had a, a, your essay. If I only had a leg was in the best American essays, 2017, this book is out in uh, 2023. How long were you writing this? How long did it take to get leg to where it is today? Um, I would say it took a full 10 years. I mean, I started writing the first, um, that essay you mentioned, the one about the Wizard of Oz and meeting an actor who played a munchkin um, it, through my childhood singing and acting troupe. I started that one right after graduate school, like the summer after grad school. Um, and then I think I just had these stories that I was dying to tell that had happened in my youth. Um, I mean, the other one that really sticks out in my mind is one I was dying to tell was I met um, a guy with HIV AIDS who came to speak to my seventh grade life science class. And this was in, you know, conservative Utah yeah. public school that had, you know, an abstinence only sex ed policy. Um, so there were just these little things that were, that were bubbling up. Um, and I had tried to sell a version of the book way back in like 2016. Hmm. Um, but it was very, I think in that, at that point, it was still kind of just a gay humor book. I, um, it, like, I wanted to call it long-term side effects of Accutane. And I think looking back, I was, I was just so familiar with like queer comedy. And that had just been like, that was just like such a familiar script. And I kind of, knew how to do that because I had examples in the culture like David Sedaris or David Rakoff um, who were kind of doing that and could kind of like do it really well. And so I think, um, yeah, but as, as the book kept getting rejected and I kept kind of like learning more and more about myself and my identity as a disabled person, I think that I was just able to add hopefully some depth and luster to, um, to my stories and it, you know, I kind of jokingly say that it's like leaves of grass. Like it was just this book that I kept working on for my entire life. And that was just absolutely never going to get published. And I mean, I think it was, I forget, I'm actually blanking on the number, but I think it was rejected by like 50 publishers at one point, like not like, not like editors, but like publishers, like mm -hmm. publishing, like, you know, and maybe like you'd go to like Simon and Schuster, like twice or three times over the years. Yeah. But, I mean, it was like, I think it like must be the most rejected book in the history of the world. <laughs> and my agent's always like, probably don't say that. <laughs> but um, I think it's interesting. I think that yeah. it was, 
a thing where um, it was my own development as a writer and sticking with the same thing, sticking with the same material, but just reworking it and also the culture changing. Um, Because some of the rejections that I would get kind of early on were sort of like cerebral palsy is is a spectrum disorder and like this kind of isn't a big deal basically. Um, And I don't think that like an editor would say that now to a disabled person um so it was or you know i was kind of told in a very like pat on the head way like oh you're sort of just ahead of your time um and who knows when that time will come and so it's been interesting to kind of see that legs time did sort of come Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lesson for writers there where like if you're just kind of obsessed with you know a body part of you know if you're obsessed with your literary train and your material it can just be about um repackaging it keep like working on it more and more and and writing more and more so that you know hopefully the stories or the chapters at the end of the book are more mature have more complexity to them um but that it's all part of the same project and Mm -hmm. not to bring up george saunders again but he visited us in grad school And someone asked him like, well, what's the difference between, you know, people who publish and people who don't, you know, like this very anxious grad school question that's on everybody's mind. And he said, you know, sometimes it's about fitting your work through the door of publication. Um, And I'm probably messing up his exact phrasing, but I just sort of loved that because he's such an unconventional idiosyncratic writer. I mean, it's almost he's almost the idiosyncratic writer of his generation. And so to think of him trimming his sails in some way to fit through the door of publication was kind of amazing. And I think it was sort of, I think it snapped me a little bit out of that grad school mindset where it's like, where you're like, okay, this doesn't have to be a quote, MFA prestige book or story. It can kind of, you know, I don't know, both trimming your sails, but also coming into your own, I guess, to like completely garble that in mixed metaphors. Yeah, but yeah just, a, you know, just an interesting kind of artistic coming of age. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, you mentioned George Saunders a lot. I like to wrap up with there's like book recommendations. They could be things that have influenced you, things you're currently reading. Um, yeah, what, what, or what are you vibing with? Well, the book I have always gone back to um, is Easy Beauty by Chloe Cooper Jones. It Mm -hmm. was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize this year. Um, And Chloe and I have just like known each other for for years now. And um, it was just wonderful to read her book as one of her friends. And it made me want all of my friends to write books (laughs) because I'm like, I don't just want like the bar story version of this, like I want the full literary, like technicolor version of this. So I love that book. Um, uh, Elizabeth McCracken has a new short novel out called The Hero of This Book that also um, deals with kind of disability and family and family storytelling. Um, And I, I read it, my husband and I both read it in Palm Springs on vacation. And it was just like, it's an unconventional vacation read, but we just blew through it and um, loved it so much. And then as far as reported nonfiction, I just read The Underworld by Susan Casey. That's um, It's not a typical thing that I would pick up, but it was 
re um, recommended to me by uh, my friend Nina, who's a bookseller at Maria's Bookshop in Durango, Colorado. And it's about exploring the deep ocean. So like the, the um, I think anything below 800 feet. Um, and so it's just this wild ride of basically like, like space is in our planet in the oceans like space mm -hmm. exploration is happening in our in the ocean that was sort of like my very clunky like mom in a van in middle america way of putting it but so that book was super fascinating thank you so much to greg for joining the debut of little podcast today to talk about his debut memoir leg you can find him on the internet at gregmarshall.com on twitter at greg r marshall and on Instagram at Greg from a leg, each word has an underscore. So Greg underscore from underscore a underscore leg. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful and you're all beautiful.